Good morning. A GOP candidate for the United States Senate says local political officials should decide on abortion. False flag dirty bomb threats in Ukraine. A family seeks justice for a man killed in his kitchen by the NYPD. And a new report says the city isn't funding climate resiliency plans. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Friday morning, October 27, 2022. Yesterday, President Joe Biden hit GOP Pennsylvania Senate candidate Mehmet Oz for saying local political leaders should decide if a woman can get an abortion. Biden tweeted, if Dr. Oz gets his way, where does this end? Would he recommend local officials make decisions about cancer treatments, colonoscopies, or is this kind of scrutiny reserved just for women? Sharing the following clip of Oz's viral answer from Tuesday night's debate. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Democrats have rallied around the issue of abortion access dating back to June when the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, which had for decades guaranteed the right to an abortion. Democratic candidate John Fetterman showed the effects of a stroke he survived as he stumbled over a question about fracking. I strongly support fracking, drilling, the piping of that natural gas. I do support fracking and I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. Language stumbles showed by Fetterman are usually separate from cognitive ability. Fracking is a method for getting a natural gas. It's common in Pennsylvania and contributes half a billion dollars to the state's economy. Fracking opponents say the practice pollutes groundwater with industrial chemicals. And the world is being destroyed in a nuclear Armageddon this week, twice, once by Russia, then by NATO, during previously scheduled war games that highlight the dangers of recent threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, Meanwhile, artillery and missiles from Russia pounded targets in Ukraine. As Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed without evidence, Ukraine is set to use a dirty bomb on the battlefront. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg called Russia's statements absurd. In the United States, officials have been claiming Russia is preparing a false flag operation masquerading as Ukraine to give pretense to an attack with nukes in retaliation. Biden warned Russia any use of a dirty bomb by the Kremlin would prompt U.S. countermeasures. Is Russia preparing to deploy a dirty bomb itself or a nuclear weapon? I, uh, I spent a lot of time today talking about that. Uh, let me just say, Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if we were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not guaranteeing you that it's a false flag operation yet. We don't know. But uh, it would be a serious, serious mistake. A dirty bomb uses an explosive blast to shower an area with radioactive fallout without the massive blast of an everyday nuclear bomb. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby described how Russia informed the U.S. of their allegations against Ukraine. The Russian defense minister called the Secretary of Defense and said that they had information that the Ukrainians were, were, were fixing to, to, uh, to use a dirty bomb. 
It's obviously, it's a false allegation. That's not true. The Ukrainians have nothing like that in mind. Uh, they have no intention to do that. So that's why we take that's why we take it seriously. Now, the question you're asking is, are they just using the threat of it, or are they actually doing? Again, we've not seen any indications that they're making any preps to do that. We are making sure that Ukraine can defend itself against the range of threats that the Russians are posing inside Ukraine. And I think I'm going to leave it there. And lastly, um, do you, you made clear that Russia using a tactical nuclear weapon would be crossing a very significant line. Do you view the use of a dirty bomb as crossing that same line? The use of a dirty bomb would cause significant casualties, depending on the size of it, and certainly follow-on casualties as well from radiation exposure. I'm not going to classify it one way or the other, except to say that it would be yet another example of Russia's brutality on the Ukrainian people. Another level of atrocity, if they were to do it, that would have to be dealt with and, and properly held accountable for it. Ukraine and its Western allies have denied the claims and contend that Russia, facing setbacks on the battlefield, might itself try to detonate a dirty bomb. Ukraine and its Western allies have denied the claims and contend that Russia, facing setbacks on the battlefield, might itself try to detonate a dirty bomb. And Iran's foreign minister rejected as baseless claims Tehran supplied drones to Russia used in recent attacks against Ukraine. He was quoted saying, we strongly dismiss the baseless claims of some countries on Russia's use of Iranian drones in the war against Ukraine, asking Ukraine to present evidence to back up its charges the drones were from Iran. At the United Nations last week, the assistant U.S. ambassador squarely blamed Iran for the drone attacks at a meeting of the Security Council. Since August, and in violation of the U.N. Security Council Resolution 2231, Iran has transferred Mohajer and Shahid series UAVs to Russia. These Iranian-origin UAVs have been subsequently used in multiple attacks against Ukraine, including the massive barrage on October 10, which hit civilians and civilian infrastructure. In addition to the easily identifiable remnants of these UAVs recovered in Ukraine, there's significant publicly available documentation, including photographs and video of these UAVs being used against Ukraine. The UN must investigate any violations of UN Security Council resolutions. The United States has accused Iran of supplying so-called kamikaze or suicide drones to Moscow for use against Ukraine, but Iran says although they supply weapons to Russia, none have been used in the war against Ukraine. A day after King Charles III welcomed as the United Kingdom's new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, the new PM faced his first grilling by Parliament. It didn't take long for the sparks to fly, as Labour leader Keir Starmer ripped Sunak for naming an immigration hardliner to his cabinet only a week after she was fired from her post for a security violation. The Home Secretary made an error of judgment, but she recognised that. She raised the matter and she accepted her mistake. And that's why, that's why I was delighted to welcome back into a united cabinet that brings experience and stability. She'll be focused on cracking down on criminals, on defending our borders, while the party opposite remains soft on crime and in favour of unlimited immigration. Yesterday, the Prime Minister stood on the steps of Downing Street and promised integrity, professionalism and accountability. But then, with his first act, 
He appointed a Home Secretary who was sacked by his predecessor a week ago for deliberately pinging around sensitive Home Office documents from her personal account. Far from soft on crime, I ran the Crown Prosecution Service for five years. I, I, I worked with Home Secretaries to take on terrorists and serious organised crime. And I know firsthand how important it is that we have a Home Secretary whose integrity and professionalism are beyond question. So, have officials raised concerns about his decision to appoint her? Mr. Mr. Speaker, I just addressed the issue with the Home Secretary, but but he uh, he talked about fighting crime. I would hope, I would hope, Mr. Speaker, I would hope that he would welcome. I would hope, I would hope that as we look forward, he would welcome the news today that there are over 15,000 new police officers on our Well, Mr Speaker, I listened carefully. That was clearly not a no. We can all see what's happened here. He's so weak, he's done a grubby deal trading national security because he was scared to lose another leadership election. There's a new Tory at the top, but as always with them, party first, country second. Home Secretary Suella Braverman had been fired by Sunak's hapless predecessor, Liz Truss, whose economic decisions quickly tanked the British economy. Braverman had mishandled secret documents and had been forced to resign as Home Secretary, only to be reappointed by Truss's successor, Rishi Sunak. And here in the United States, on Wednesday, three men accused of a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer were convicted of terrorism charges. Joe Morrison, his father-in-law, Pete Musico, and Paul Beller were found guilty of supplying material support for a terrorist act as members of a group known as the Wolverine Watchmen. The trial in state court was an offshoot of the main case in federal court, which produced mixed results. Jurors in Jackson, Michigan, read and heard violent anti-government screeds, as well as support for the Boogaloo, a civil war that might be triggered by a shocking abduction. Jurors in Jackson, Michigan, read and heard violent anti-government screeds, as well as support for the Boogaloo, a civil war that might be triggered by a shocking abduction. The defense said the plot was never serious and was cooked up by an FBI informant. Whitmer, who is seeking re-election on November 8th, was never physically harmed. Undercover agents and informants were inside the conspiracy for months, and the scheme was broken up with 14 arrests in October 2020. The governor blamed then-President Trump for stoking violent divisions in the country with his attacks on mask and vaccine mandates. And in related news, last week a judge sentenced former Trump political advisor Steve Bannon to four months in jail and a $6,500 fine for criminal contempt of Congress. Bannon said quietly and didn't react as U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols delivered the sentence. Outside the court, Bannon was defiant. This is a, this is a, this is democracy. This is democracy. The American people are weighing in measuring what went on with the Justice Department and how they comported themselves. They're weighing and measuring that right now and they will vote on November 8th. They will, hang on, they will vote, hang on, they will, they will know, they will know, can I go ahead and finish? Can I, thanks. On November 8th, on November 8th, the American people will raise judgment and we will groom 
the Biden administration ends on the eighth evening of the eighth of November. And let me be let me some other thing is that the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, will end up being the first attorney general that's brought up on charges of impeachment and he will be removed from office. Thank you very much. Bannon flouted demands for documents and testimony from the panel investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Lawmakers on the House Select Committee wanted to know why he said a day before the siege that, quote, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In local news, the mother of a man who was killed by the NYPD in 2019 is pleading with the city's Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB, to move forward with its case against the officers involved. Kowalski Trawick, 32, was shot four times in his Bronx apartment by officers Brendan Thompson, who had arrived with his partner, Officer Herbert Davis, on a call from the building super who claimed Trawick was losing his mind all day. The police entered the apartment where and found Trawick holding a serrated kitchen knife. When Trawick demanded the cops get out, he was shot. An independent CCRB investigation found that the officers violated multiple policies and substantiated disciplinary charges against the officers. officers. The CCRB is supposed to schedule administrative trial, but the organization says there's a backlog of cases. The CCRB is supposed to schedule an administrative trial, but says there's a backlog of cases. Kowalski's mother, Ellen Trawick, says for her family, the delay is justice denied. Yesterday, we was hoping to get the administrative trial on the calendar within the next week or so. Once we got to the um, court conference, the police union attorney that was representing Brandon Thompson request for delay because he claimed that Herbert Davis, the other officer that was involved in the Swastis murder, needed a different attorney. They request for a delay. The judge, she um, gave them until November the 17th to feed and got an attorney and discuss what they needed for the to go on the calendar. So how do you feel about these developments? So we was a little disappointed because we was thinking that, you know, we was going to go in on yesterday and they was going to go ahead and sit sit the trial on the calendar. But it's been three and a half years. I mean, the CCRB had already had filed the charges and submitted the charges on the two officers a year ago, we feel like within a year, you should be the, you should have your attorney ready because it's been a whole year. Mm-hmm. And we was looking forward to going forward, not backwards, you know. And it's like we came here and nothing's moving forward. It's just delayed, delayed, and. We're just disappointed in that, and we feel like the conversation that the um, commission attorney, he was acting like it it wasn't even that important because it's been three years. It's been three years too long already. We want to see some accountability for what happened to Kowalski because Kowalski's life mattered to us. They took, they took our loved one away from us.
you know. Tell me about your son. So, you know, Kwasi, he was a very motivated, driven person, you know. He moved here to New York to pursue a dream, and it was taken away from us, taken away from him. Video seems to show one of the officers actually attempting to pull down the weapon of the other officer, uh, and the other, and he's pushed away by his own partner. Yes, yeah, that's what. Yes, what we seen in the video too. Um, Herbert Davis was telling Brandon Thompson. He said that we wasn't gonna tase him when they when he first pulled out the taser, and then seconds later he pulled out his weapon. And Thompson was, we could see in the video where Thompson was trying to tell him not to shoot, but you're the superior officer, so right. I don't even think you should have got that far. Well, I couldn't understand why they were in his apartment anyway. We don't understand why they was inside the apartment anyway, because like Kowalski had, he was cooking and he stepped out and got locked out. So he was trying to get back in. So he called the fire department. The fire department let him back in. He was back in. I don't even know why they showed up. Because the fire department had to get the door open and let him back in, they kind of had it chained up. So when the two officers came, Herbert Davis, he he broke the chain and just opened the door and let themselves in. And Kowalski was asking, why are y'all here? Why are y'all in my home? But they never answered. Then Brandon Thompson pulled out his taser and tased him. And then seconds later, killed him. And then they they closed the door. They didn't even try to render any aid. They closed the door and just let him die. And then later, after the other cops and stuff showed up, Herbert Davis stated that no one was hurt, just a perk. Colin Kowalska, perk, like, he was a criminal, like he had committed a crime. He hadn't committed a crime. He was in his own home cooking. Yeah. What would you like to see come from this? We would like to see the administrative trial set before this year is out. And we would like Brandon Thompson and Herbert Davis to be fired. Anything you'd like to add? No, nope, we just want justice for our son. We want Brandon Thompson and Herbert Davis fired. They need to be held accountable for what what they have done, which is murdered our son. Ellen Trawick, the mother of Kowalski Trawick, who was shot and killed by NYPD officers in 2019. The CCRB has uh, yet to set a trial date for the officer. And in more local news, yesterday was the 10th anniversary of Superstorm Sandy, and Mayor Eric Adams broke ground on a $522 million East River Resiliency Project in the Two Bridges section of Manhattan, consisting of several flip-up flood barriers. The storm pounded New York City's coastal areas, taking 43 lives and causing $19 billion in damages. But the projects to raise shorelines and build retractable barriers have been controversial. Residents near East River Park on the Lower East Side bitterly opposed closing one of the few recreational venues in the area and the demolition of nearly 1,000 trees. Many felt the city budget wasn't up to the job of completing the project in the three years promised. And now a report by City Comptroller Brad Landers says pretty much the same. The report, titled 10 Years After Sandy, Barriers to Resilience, claims the city has spent only 13% 
of the city capital project funds for key projects. According to Comptroller Brad Lander, the report demonstrates a slow pace of recovery and resiliency spending. At Wednesday's groundbreaking, Trevor Holland, a community activist who lives in the area, a neighborhood known as Two Bridges because it sits between the Brooklyn and Williamsburg bridges, says his building was the one of the ones struck by the rising waters. As she said, my name is Trevor Holland and I'm the president of the Two Bridges Tower Resident Association. I actually live in that tan building right behind us and I've lived there for the past 25 years. I'd like to thank and welcome everyone to my neighborhood. Nearly 10 years ago to this date, I stood here watching the East River breach the water's edge. It was a frightful day, but it also made me realize our vulnerability and that we live on an island. Superstorm Sandy ravaged this community. The storm decimated my building. We were without power, elevators, and critical supplies for months. But we were not down. This diverse working class neighborhood of Two Bridges showed our true resilience with neighbors and families alike supporting and helping each other through difficult times. Our advocacy for storm and coastal protection has led us to this point. This path has been challenging, but we are elated to see this historic investment from New York City and the federal government of over a half a billion dollars. Meanwhile, Tom Foley of the city's Department of Design and Construction describes the project and how it will be managed. The walls will be nine feet high. It'll, they'll be actually recessed, so 99% of the time they, they will provide the, the views and the access to the residents and to the community. Um, and uh, just to go back as far as the, the, the question from the, the, uh, the birthday boy, um, the, uh, the, the project will be complete by 2026, both here and also at Eastside Coastal Resiliency. So $2 billion worth of work. Uh, we're currently on budget and on schedule. Well, I would say the mayor, I don't want to put him on the spot, but, uh, but by a dedicated city team that's going to be adapting uh, for the, that's, that's already uh, collected and going through exercises as far as the, uh, from a resiliency standpoint, storm events. Foley went on to describe the massive concrete walls that are being built along the water's edge. Meanwhile, the mayor grappled with questions about the money for the project and the slow pace of the city's contribution. Uh, but these projects have never been built before. And so we don't want to move at a rapid pace just to say, okay, we spent the money. No, we have to get it right. We have to get it right. Uh, what we're doing here is going to uh, set the course for other municipalities with coastal cities. And so, you know, there's really, there's always a desire uh, to say we're going to, we're going to just spend all the money that was allocated. The previous administrations, they did the right thing by getting it right. We're going to get it right. And that 27% that's remaining, uh, those projects have been identified, but it's about making sure these projects are done cor correctly. Adams also praised the local city council member who continues supporting the project even as local residents were protesting. Councilman Rivera and I, we were at the, uh, the Coastal Gate together. Uh, she's from the previous administration. Uh, she served previously. Having someone with the insight that she brings, understanding that a lot of her district is around coastal areas, uh, and I think that experience is going to help. Uh, you know, good, healthy dialogue uh, we believe is important, but we should not get in the way of something that we all agree that we need to protect our coastal areas. And that's and when you look behind us from Julie Menon and others, uh, we have uh, really received some good support 
that we are in alignment on making sure we get this right. And we all understand the urgency of, the, of this moment. New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And in Washington Square Park last weekend, there was a celebration of the life of iconic local activist Doris Dealer. Friends came to dedicate a park bench to the late Greenwich Village activist and zoning maven of Community Board 2. She loved the music often heard in the park, and songs were sung in her honor, including this chestnut, rewritten and sung by fellow activist Sharon Wollums. Doris Dieter died in September 2021. She was 92. And that's the news for Thursday morning, October 27, 2022. The news was written and anchored by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.